I'm a British conservative. And so to most, I always joke, if I was in America, most of them would think I'm a communist because I, <laughs> I agree with, so for example, we have an NHS in Britain, which is a universal healthcare system. I'm supportive yeah. of that. I'm close to, I know you've met Ben Shapiro. He's closely aligned with where I am at, but I'm a little bit, I think I'd be a little bit more to the left than he is. What would that make me then? I don't know what that is. Call me. Do you find that the woman... You're, tr- you're Trotsky to his Lenin. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Can I Make a Point, the podcast where we listen to ideas, guests and on some occasions even know each other. In that spirit, my name is Bradley and I'm a Conservative and I'll be joined every week by my friend Danny, who happens to be a Socialist. It's a potent blend, I know. I just want to say, at the start of this podcast, a massive thank you to those who have generally given money to the Patreon. Those include Mike Hodson, Mark Quinn, Sarah Worrell, Jill Worrell, Alex Purvis Alex Doan Jane, and James Hodson. This money allows us to cover our costs, make good cons- content and allow us to bring more voices to the forefront. If you enjoy this podcast and what we have been doing, please consider supporting us on Patreon. We accept donations from £1 all the way up to £25, which come with benefits such as seeing the podcast a day early, access to bonus episodes and clips and our monthly long read. To find out more, please visit www.theconversationallemon.com and please subscribe to keep up to date with our videos and follow The Conversational Lemon on Twitter at TC underscore Lemon and on Instagram at The Conversational Lemon for updates on new content. On today's episode is Michael Shermer, the founder and editor-in-chief of Skeptics Magazine and the Skeptic Society and author of Giving the Devil His Due. In our interview today, we discuss the importance of free speech, politics and scientific humanism. But first, I ask him who he is and what point he wants to make. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm the publisher of this magazine. This is my day job, Skeptic Magazine. We debunk claims of all kinds, including this latest one, uh, QAnon. As you probably heard, that's a pretty big thing here in the United States. You know, this belief in a satanic cult of um pedophiles that are that have infiltrated the United States government and of course it's always Hillary and and (laughs) other Democrats that are you know secretly involved in this cult for which no one can seem to find any evidence whatsoever other than the breadcrumbs that Q uh, leaks once in a while and that you know Donald Trump was going to fight against the deep state and all this uh, stuff going on well um, that's kind of a, an example of the kind of thing we do. Um, that is, you know, somebody makes a claim that uh, a truth claim. So we want to know, well, is it true or not? And, you know, science and reason are our best tools we have for answering those kinds of questions. And, and, uh, and so it's, it's quite broad. I mean, conspiracies, conspiracy theories is just one area, you know, we deal with, as you mentioned, like Holocaust denial or creationism. Uh, a lot on UFOs and uh, alien abductions and, and even claims that, um, uh, you know, the SETI claims that extraterrestrials are out there somewhere. Okay, well, what's the evidence for that? What are the arguments and so on? So, you know, my day job is doing that sort of thing, editing articles for the magazine and doing a lot of media interviews and, and writing my books on these various related topics. And I'm a professor at 
Chapman University, which is a four-year liberal arts college here in Southern California. And um, I have this semester, this year off because of COVID. <laughs> so uh, uh, we'll, you know, pick up again in the fall teaching my skepticism 101 class. So that's, you know, basically the tools of skepticism, which are important because most scientists are not trained on how to deal with these kinds of claims. You know, what are the What's the context for the claim? You know, like I, I realized this early on in the late 80s, early 90s, when I would see um, evolutionary biologists debate creationists and, and, and they didn't do well because th they thought it was a debate about evolutionary biology. It's not a debate about that. It, it's, they have their own set of, of uh, facts that they like to, to, to portray as real and <clears throat> they have their own agenda and their own set of arguments. And if you don't know what those arguments are, then you're not going to do well. Same thing with the Holocaust deniers. You know, when, when Holocaust historians tried to engage with them, they didn't do well because they didn't know what kind of arguments uh, were going to be made. They just thought, well, I'll just put forth what we know about the Holocaust and that'll do it. No, that, that won't do it because they have answers to all those. You have mm -hmm. to know what their arguments are. So that's kind of our niche. Um, my books, the magazine and so on, the society. Um, that's what we do. You know, skeptic.com is our webpage and, you know, there's tons of free content on there. You can sort of see, you know, one last example, for example, uh, fire walking, you know, um, how is it done? How do people walk across burning hot coals barefoot and, and without getting burned? Well, first, some of them do get burned. Second, it has nothing to do with positive thinking or, or having the bottom of your feet wet or anything like that. And again, scientists, you know, they just think, well, you know, it's just, uh, the laden frost effect where you have water on your bottom of your foot. No, it's not that. It's the poor conductivity of wood, dead wood, you know, through the, the, the heat conductivity through the dead skin on the bottom of your foot. It, it just doesn't, it's not the temperature. It's how much heat is conducted from one material to another. And if you walk fairly quickly across the coals, you don't stop and take selfies and so on. You won't get burnt. I've done three of these now. And that's an example of, you know, a skeptic knowing what the explanation is for some mysterious phenomenon that most people don't know. And I think want to know. Mm. Yeah. So um, you obviously contend in the book with freedom of speech, um, which is a regular conversation me and Bradley have on the podcast and stuff, because we obviously feel that there's may i personally feel there's major re restrictions on what people can say because of things like cancel culture and you know um ideological constraints uh, in in the body politic and i'm wondering how free do you think free speech can be <laughs> well it should be as free as we could possibly make it short of defaming somebody or lying about them that that damages them in some way particularly harms their income. So we're seeing right now, for example, a massive lawsuit was just filed uh, by the uh, manufacturer of these uh, electronic voting machines because against Fox News and their hosts. Uh, I think it's Sean Hannity and uh, Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson, and a few of the others for, for over $2 billion uh, because they lied. Uh, you know, that yeah, yes, the, the, the government can't come in and tell Fox News what they can and cannot say. But if they lie about somebody and it harms them, which it did, this company was severely damaged by what they said. They were trying to sell the company, apparently. And the things that the Fox News people were saying about the, the phony election, rigged election, these machines were all hacked and you know, that, that hurt the company. So they're suing him. So I, I agree with that. I think, you know, free speech has certain limits, you know, hurting somebody, you know, actually 
you know, harming their income, you know, short of, you know, physical violence, you know, that that's also real. And also I should uh, add that, um, you know, we all sense self-censor to a certain extent uh, in polite conversation. I mean, you don't just blurt out, you know, that the woman you're talking to has an ugly dress or, you know, the guy's suit is, is hideous or something. You know, you don't, you don't have to be a dick or a jerk and, and just blurt out everything you think uh, uh, walk people walking by you. Um, you know, uh, it, it's not necessary. And, and we all do that anyway. And that's probably a good thing. You know, there's movies about this where people uh, can't uh, not tell the truth about everything. I think Jim Carrey had a movie, Liar, Liar, where, you know, he, he lived in a world where everything, um, everything he thought he had to say, uh, no matter how harmful or hurtful it was. And, you know, hilarity ensues or Ricky Gervais has a mm. movie about this. That's one of my favorites, The Invention of Lying. Yeah, right, it's a good where, film. Where it, it's a great film. And everyone on the planet, you know, is always telling the truth. You know, when he <laughs> discovers one day at the bank, you know, where he goes to withdraw $800 and the teller says, well, you only have $600 in here, but obviously you must be right. We must be wrong. So here's your $800. And he's like, oh my God. Yeah, I think it's in the Jim Carrey movie. There's a really good scene where they, they've just had sex. And he's laying next to her and she says, so how was it? And obviously, because he can't lie, he says, I've had better. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. And then he ob yeah. she obviously smacks him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so of course we all, all do that kind of self-censoring. Uh, and that's fine. That's normal. What I worry about is, uh, as you mentioned, the cancel culture. So where people um, would like to voice their opinions on abortion or immigration or race relations or foreign policy or whatever, but they, they're hesitant to do so because they're afraid their colleagues, either in the classroom or online, uh, might cancel them. They, that, that is to mm -hmm. say, the idea that there's a correct answer to these issues where there is no correct answer. I mean, pro-life, pro-choice, you know, I happen to be pro-choice and I have good arguments for it, but I recognize the pro-lifers have good arguments on the other side and we can have our debate and you have your say, I'll have my say and that's it, right? But uh, like in my classroom, for example, at Chapman, you know, these are 18, 19 year old kids. And, you know, I, I can tell they're really afraid to say anything uh, when I bring up things like th those issues. Mm. You know, they kind of look around, look left, look right. Uh, 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 you know, that's not good, you know, because particularly in that context, that's where students should be voicing their opinions and bouncing their ideas off and getting critical feedback to see, you know, how strong their arguments are. And, mm. you know, like on the abortion issue, you know, if, if you're pro-choice, but you don't even know what the pro-life arguments are, then you're not a very good pro-choice uh, proponent, right? You got to know what the other side is thinking. And the only way to find out is to talk to the people on mm. the other side or, or read their essays or read their books or consume their content to see what the heck is going on there. So I've recently undertaken reading a bunch of these race books, um, you know, like white fragility and how to be an anti-racist and cast and between the world and me. And, you know, these are all, well, the, the anti-fragility, that's a, a white author, but the others are black authors. And, you know, I'd love to have these people on my podcast. I don't think they're going to come, but, um, you know, just, just so I can kind of figure out what the heck they're arguing, you mm. know, because these are, these books have been on the New York Times bestseller list for months. And it's like, okay, something's going on here. Uh, what is it that, that's appealing to people? And I read them and I think, ah, you know, I'm just not vibing this, this, this set of arguments here, but, uh, but at least now I know what they are because uh, I read their books and uh, you know, yeah. I didn't particularly want to, you know, it's a whole kind of postmodern deconstruction, no objective truth, all, uh, all science and reason is, uh, you know, hegemonic white supremacy. And it's like, okay, come on. Uh, I disagree with that, but, um, 
you know, but, but if we can't have a conversation about it and, and, and figure out what the real arguments are, then, then we're really lost. Yeah. And I, I've always understood, like, whenever I hear people's censorship, uh, it seems like from their perspective, I've always seen it as like a weakness of their argument because like, I, I'm willing to debate or discuss with anyone on anything because I believe in what I'm saying. I can vouch for but, that. <laughs> uh, but do you not see that there is a danger, for example, and obviously you've been in controversy because you've defended David Irving's right to be to, to present his arguments for Holocaust now because obviously I think you'd agree that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Do you see yeah. danger that if the mainstream continues to try and censor like those what can seem extreme views, they could actually get more popularity. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, yeah, so this is an argument against censorship because it's the, you know, banned in Boston effect. You know, we don't want you to read this book. Well, why not? <laughs> Maybe I want to check this book out. And, and, and the fact that you're telling me I shouldn't read it makes me want to read it even more, right? So I almost wish somebody would try to cancel one of my books <laughs> so I could get that effect. <laughs> Uh, but that, that is what happened. I mean, it kind of put David Irving on the map. It wasn't his views. It was the attacks on his views that made him famous. I mean, he was kind of well-known as a historian before the whole uh, Holocaust uh, denial thing kind of crept into his work. That was in his, uh, I think, uh, late 1979. I think it was his Hitler's War book at the very end, where he kind of hinted that, uh, you know, that Hitler didn't give an order to uh, orchestrate the Holocaust. It just sort of happened by his underlings making it happen and, and he kind of enabled it through his anti-Semitism or something like that. Anyway, he got some attention for that. So then he put up money because I'll give you a thousand pounds, I think it was for anybody that can produce the, you know, the Fuhrer order. You know, I, Adolf Hitler hereby ordered the, uh, you know, extermination of all European Jews. Well, there is no such order, okay? And we have reasons for why, we know why that, that is the case, but, but that's what made Irving famous. Then it put him on the map and then he went further down that path. And the further down that path he went, the more attention he got. Not good attention, it's not the kind of attention I'd want, but, but, but he kind of relished in it because he was always sort of on the margins anyway of academia and, uh, and an independent scholar. So if anything, the attacks on him emboldened him and his followers even more. I mean, when I would go to their meetings, you know, the Institute for Historical Review is in Southern California here in Costa Mesa. And so they would hold these conferences every year at, at a hotel there. So I would go. And this is mostly what they talked about was, you know, the, you know, the traditional enemy is after us. Well, who's that? The Jews. And, uh, you know, look, they're trying to shut down David Irving and here he is and he's going to talk about his work. Well, what he talked about was himself and what people were doing to him that, you know, and that's kind of emboldened the people in the room. Now these aren't huge audiences, but, but, you know, but the idea is that if, if you just let him say whatever he said and ignore him, you know, that, that'd probably be the worst thing he, he could experience. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, as a public speaker, I can tell you that, you know, the only thing worse than being protested is an empty room where no one really cares that you're, you're on campus to speak. Right. Uh, I remember I got booked to speak on Halloween night, a Friday night, Halloween night at this college campus on the East coast. And I'm in California here. So I'm telling my lecture agent, are you sure this is a good idea? I mean, Halloween night at college on a Friday night, who's going to come to my talk? I don't even want to, I wouldn't even want to go to my talk. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, there's like six people there. I'm like, Oh gosh. This is so embarrassing. <laughs> you know, so when someone like Milo Yiannopoulos shows up at UC Berkeley and, and, you know, the students lose their minds and, uh, you know, they're out there protesting and weeks ahead of time, there's all these rallies and, and 
course, he just eats it up. This is fabulous. You know, he just loves it. The worst thing you could be would be just, just ignore him and no one go. You know, he, he would hate that, right? So, you know, that's the, another counter argument against censorship is that it emboldens the other side. Hmm. Mm. No, I, I, I think that leads really nicely to a thought that I often have, have, which is that I find that in the age of increasing, whether you want to call it partisanship or, or tribalism, people, because they're often hunkered down in their own bunkers, I feel like it's becoming very much a reflex to uh, deny facts or ignore facts and um, and just shut people down by by saying, well, you're wrong without presenting any counter argument or engaging with them. It's, uh, it seems like a default position. I'm, I'm just wondering what you what you think of that claim. Yeah, that's well, of course, that's not helpful. I mean, if it's a factual claim that could be checked, well, then let's check it. And then, you know, l l let me see your facts. Uh, again, if it's an opinion that's slightly different, um, you know, that, of course, you can have your opinion, I'll have my opinion, but, uh, but often those do turn on facts that are either true or not. Uh, and so what's the deal there? Like, you know, yesterday I was tweeting about Andy Noe's new book, which is being, uh, you know, can cancel culture is going crazy over this book. You know, Andy Noe is the, um, uh, the kind of conservative journalist with a camera that goes to all these Antifa rallies and films them and their crazy violence. I mean, it's just insane what these Antifa people do in Portland and mm. Seattle. Andy, Andy lives in Portland. So he's right there filming him. Well, they hate him. And, uh, you know, and, and there, and Powell's bookstore is the largest independent bookstore in the United States. It's in Portland. I've done many talks there. It's a great bookstore. Well, so they, you know, these, these protesters surround the bookstore with, with banners and signs and, you know, you do not sell Andy knows books. So they decide, well, we're not going to sell it. Okay. We are going to sell it. Okay. We're not going to sell. It. Oh no. You know, and they're kind of bending to the wind and, you know, this is not mm. good, but but in fact, you know, what do I see when I turn on the news, Fox News, every night there's Andy No, you know, being interviewed to talk about why his book is being canceled. Well, as an author, I, you know, I'd like to be on talk shows every night talking about my book, right? So these, these Antifa people, you know, they're, they've lost their minds. They, they have yeah. no idea. This is what emboldens the right. And of course, on Fox News, it's, you know, this is what anyone one millimeter to the left of dead center, like Joe Biden, this is what Joe Biden is going to bring us, you know, these crazy Antifa people, even though, you know, they are far, far left and Joe Biden is pretty dead center. Right. But that's, you know, that's another argument against, you know, people going that extreme. It just emboldens the extremists on the other side. Mm. Do you, do you find the, just on that, because what I found interesting is, but throughout the book, you, you use a phrase like, totalitarian liberalism. I know Majid Nawaz and Dave Rubin have used terms like regressive liberalism. For anyone that's not aware of what you meant by totalitarian li liberalism, how would you define that? Oh, well, so, you know, just again, the, the kind of the more extreme you go, uh, the more totalitarian it becomes on both the left and the right. Um, you know, so, you know, if you, if you take that line and you bend it up and you get, you know, they kind of meet at the, at the, at the ends, uh, at this kind of totalitarianism or authoritarianism and there's different words for it. Just the, the question is this, you know, do, does the gun come out at some point? Is there violence mm. uh, to, to achieve? Do you need violence to achieve your ends? And that's on either side is what concerns me. 
you know, peaceful protest is one thing, but it doesn't take much to get a mob uh, going to, 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 to shift into violence. It happens on both the left and the right, you know, the Proud Boys and the, you know, Unite the Right in Charlottesville or, you know, the Portland protests on, on the BLM and activists and Antifa, you know, th these are not good on either side. And I'm not doing that, you know, so sometimes when I say that I get accused of being both sideism, you know, oh, you're just equating them. Well, I'm not, you know, I, I don't know if they're exactly the same. And again, with the Andy No thing, uh, I was asking, because he highlights Antifa and he's criticized, why don't you highlight the Proud Boys and all those? And, and he apparently kind of portrays them as just peaceful protesters and it, people point out, well, they get violent too, like in Charlottesville. Okay, so really we need to put numbers on it. You know, how many domestic terrorist attacks were there in a 10 year block of time? What percentage of them were left driven? What percentage of them were right driven? Then you know, just put the numbers on it instead of saying, mm -hmm. well, one's worse than the other. What do you mean by worse? You know, 10% worse, 50% worse, you know, 90% worse. And you know, I'm, I'm, now I'm trying to track that down because you know, one um, site I found yesterday said, uh, you know, right wing domestic terrorists are way worse than Antifa. Most of the Antifa was mostly peaceful, though, you know, you just see all the burning and broken Starbucks windows and whatever. Uh, the Proud Boys are worse. Well, okay, what do you mean by worse? You know, breaking Starbucks windows, maybe that's not as bad as running somebody over in your with your car, like at Charlottesville. But that was one incident. And, you know, how much property damage, you know, adds up to where it, it you know, it, it really does harm society. Anyway, I, to me, it's a quantitative question, uh, mm -hmm. but it's, it doesn't take much for us to shift to a qualitative moral judgment against those people. And that, that's where it gets, you know, I guess problematic, as they say. <laughs> mm. um, what would you say is, is more important, freedom of speech or democracy? And, that, mm. and I'm just wondering you what, could... where, you, where you'd go with that, because... How would you disentangle them? I think they're, they go hand in hand. For, mm. for a democracy to operate effectively, you have to have a fairly open um, society. By open, I mean uh, free speech open. That is, people feel free to voice their opinions in op-ed pieces and protests and books, articles, or just conversations. And, uh, and, and, and that's then, then you go to the voting booth and that's where the, the experiment it happens right there. It's kind of an experiment uh, where everybody has their say and then we vote and then we run the experiment for the next four years or whatever. And then we run it again. And we, you know, so it's a con constantly updated experiment because the, the, the variables are always changing. So it, it's absolutely necessary to have both. I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't dis disentangle them, <laughs> pull them apart that way. Um, you know, they're, they're dependent on each other. And free speech requires some kind of, well, you have to have some kind of rule of law uh, in which you say the government can't do the following or, or private corporations, well, they can do certain things, but they can't uh, discriminate against people based on uh, race and gender and sexual orientation now, for example. Um, that, that would not be protected speech anymore. You know, right now where the impeachment trial started today with Trump. Um, the, so the question is, did, did his words on January 6th that morning, when he said, be strong, we're going to go to the Capitol and we're going to be strong and we're going to fight like hell. Well, did he mean fight like physical fight, like get in there and fisticuffs and bring out the guns and knives and let's actually have some violence. Well, of course, now his lawyers are going, no, no, no. He meant fight metaphorically, you know, like 
Like we're going to fight for our rights, you know, uh, <laughs> with our strong voice, something like that. And, uh, and of course his, his opponents are saying, no, no, he, he meant like, we're going to go be violent. Well, so that's an interesting problem in, in free speech, um, re you know, research or literature is, you know, to, to what extent does somebody's words, maybe the words themselves are not violent, but people interpret them as, well, mm. this is what we should go do. And I'm wondering and how you and I'm, I'm wondering how you would assess that discursively, though. You know, how how would you quantify whether whether he did mean it in that way or didn't mean it in the other? I'm wondering how you'd quantify that. Well, one way to do it is to to, to ask the people who did it, uh, you know, why they did it, and uh, quite a few of them have said now, well, Trump told us to come down here. That's why we're here. Now maybe they're they're uh, you know spinning their own defense. Uh, you know, mm. the boss told me, so what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, you know, this was, uh, you know, the Nazi defense at the Nuremberg trials, you know, mm. uh, well, that guy told me, well, that guy told me and, you know, and uh, I think it's the know, whole, if, if I told you to jump off a cliff scenario. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. At some point, there has to be some moral culpability of the individual who actually commits the violence, regardless of whether someone told him to or not. So what, whatever happens with Trump in this impeachment trial, this isn't going to get off the people that actually were at the Capitol that mm. broke the windows and stormed in there and so on. They will be prosecuted regardless of what happens with Trump because they have to be held accountable. One of the more interesting trials, go back a few decades, uh, is the Manson trial, Charlie Manson. And um, Vincent Bogliosi's famous book about this, Helter Skelter, it's a great read, an incredible story about how difficult it was to, to uh, prosecute Charlie Manson because he wasn't there at the two murders. He told his followers to go do it. And so on the one hand, Bugliosi had to convince the jury that Manson had such control over these women that he could just tell them, this is what I want you to do. And they went and did it. But on the other hand, wouldn't that let them off? You know, well, again, the boss told me, so what are you gonna do? I gotta stab him, right? And, uh, and so he managed to thread that line very carefully that they were mm. under strong control of Charlie Manson. He had a, he was culpable for a role in the murders and yet they don't get off either because they had some volition, you know? So now we're going down the rabbit hole of free will, you know, to what extent- and personal responsibility. Does, personal responsibility, yeah. And, you know, I, th I think the law does this pretty well. You know, I, I, although I'll admit the determinists have pretty good arguments, uh, really strong arguments for that we live in a deterministic universe, you know, start with physics, go back to the Big Bang, and here we are today, you know, right, okay, <laughs> you can track the, you know, the kind of causal chain all the way back. But on the other hand, you know, we live in the causal net, and we're aware of the causal variables that, that impinge on us and lead us to go left instead of right or make this choice instead of that choice. And we're aware of those, and we still have some control over that, like, you know, I know if I go shopping on an empty stomach, I'm more likely to buy the chocolate chip cookies and the junk food. Whereas if I eat first, then go shopping. And I know this about future Shermer. <laughs> and so future Shermer is going to be weak in about six hours. So I better do something now to prevent the future me from doing something stupid. Right. And, uh, you know, this is willpower. It's self-control. You know, there's a whole body of research on this from psychologists you know how to how to bolster your 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 willpower you know through diet and exercise and and strategies and meditation and self-awareness and things like this so i think it's a balance in there yeah i just mm. want to go back to something that you said about like contestation in science i'm just wondering because you were saying that like there's a there's an issue with maybe finding the answer because of the way it's pre preconceptualized or presupposed 
I'm just wondering if that always has to be an answer. Like, is that something that that, that always has to be? Well, no, no. Uh, oftentimes in science, there there is no consensus. This happens a lot. So what do you do with that? And my answer is you don't have to do anything with it. The problem, let's say, take a fun example, UFOs. Uh, so myself, I'm a UFO skeptic and, uh, and UFO believers, you know, are on the other side, the serious ones and myself agree that 95% of all the sightings you've ever read about, heard about in those databases are explicable by natural terrestrial things. You know, it was a airplane, it was a weather balloon, it was Venus, it was swamp gas, it was a flock of geese or whatever. I mean, they know that and they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, and they're good debunkers too. You know, and it comes down to that 5%, those anomalies. Okay, Shermer, you can't explain that one right there. Yeah, you're right. I can't. No one can. So what do we do with it? Well, to them, it's like they make the leap. Okay, it is extraterrestrial. And I say, no, no, we don't have to have an answer. We can just say, I don't know. And just leave it at that. Now, <laughs> there's a new case on here. The, one of the best-selling books in America this week is uh, a book called Extraterrestrial. Uh, by Avi Loeb. Now, I had him on my podcast yesterday. We'll release it next week. It's a fantastic conversation because um, he's claiming that we have evidence of life beyond Earth, ex extraterrestrial intelligent life beyond Earth in the form of this Oumuamua, that famously cigar-shaped or maybe not pancake-shaped object that went zooming through the solar system in 2017. And we caught it on the way out and took some pictures and it had these weird anomalous features to it. It was rotating in a certain way. It was accelerating at a certain speed that doesn't match anything any asteroid or comet has ever done. So, okay, so what do you do with this? Well, to me, nothing. It's just, okay, well, that's an interesting rock. Maybe mm. it could be something else. And so, but his book is, you know, is a bestseller because he's, he's jumped over the line. He said, I think it's extraterrestrial. <laughs> I think it's a solar sail or something like that. It's debris from a past civilization that's just passing through our solar system. Let's look at, let's look for some more. Okay. Well, one, he's the you know, head of Harvard's astronomy department. So this isn't some crank, right? This isn't some nutball in his parents' basement talking about the, <laughs> the aliens and being abducted, right? So he gets more attention that way. And, and, he's, and he's gone beyond his colleagues to say, most of his colleagues say, we don't think that's what you're looking at. We, we just think it's weird. I and mean, maybe it's, there's just some comets or asteroids we don't know about. You know, and so I, I made this point, like, well, think of like all the moons we've discovered, plant, extrasolar planets and moons in our solar system that are really weird. And, you know, 10 years ago, we had, or maybe 30 years ago, we had no idea uh, moons can have volcanoes. Well, there's that EO moon around Jupiter that has a volcano. It has volcanoes or this other moon around Saturn that has like ice spouts coming out of it. It's like, who knew that moons could do that? Wow, mm. incredible. No one's saying extraterrestrial, right? And um, there was another case like this. I was telling him about Tabby Star. He knew all about Tabby Star. Tabitha uh, um, Boyingen was a, is an American astronomer. Who, uh, the way they detect these extrasolar system planets is that if a planet passes in front of the star, the light dims a little bit. Mm. So you focus your telescope, the instrument on the star, and it has a certain light level. And then all of a sudden the light level dips, okay? And they go, oh, okay, so there's a planet there. This is how the Kepler Space Telescope has found thousands of these planets around other stars. Now it looks like most stars have 
lots of planets. Okay, that's cool. But this one did something that no one else had ever seen. It was like a bigger dip and the dip lasted longer. Can't be a planet, can't be a comet, can't be this, can't be that. And then all of a sudden, she and others are talking about, it's a Dyson sphere. It's like a giant solar panel that some extraterrestrials put out there to capture the solar radiation for their civilization. And all of a sudden, I'm on this radio talk show in LA here, John and Jillian, because uh, they, they got um, George Norrie, who's uh, the host of a uh, Coast to Coast AM. This is this radio talk show that goes from midnight to five in the morning. This is one of the craziest shows I've ever done. You know, people are calling me, you know, I'm on Interstate 10 and I see this light. What is it? <laughs> and uh, so we're talking and John, you know, John, sort of, they're sort of like Scully and Mulder, although John is the, the skeptic and, and Jillian is the, is the, is more like Mulder. And uh, so all of a sudden she just blurts out, well, what are they like? And it's like, what are, what is who like? The aliens. It's like, no, it's just a light dip, right? It's just a little bit of data. It's an anomaly. That's all we know, you know, <laughs> but for most people, you know, it's like, okay, boom, they just jump right in. Okay. So we got the aliens and what are they like? And let's talk to them. And it's like, oh boy. And so this is what worries me for people like the head of Harvard's astronomy department to say, we've made contact because, oh boy, now, you know, I'm going to be busy for months now explaining, no, 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 we haven't made contact with the aliens. <laughs> I mean, would you consider that bad science? Not bad science, no, but um, it, it's a question of, in the philosophy of science, uh, of what do you do with anomalies and there's no consensus. Now, most of his colleagues say, we don't know what it is. They agree it's anomalous, it's weird, it's not explained by anything we know of. Uh, but, but, but they stop right there. They go, let's, let's just, you know, try to photograph some more or just go mm. on to the next problem to solve or whatever, you know, but he took that extra step. Fine. That's fine. It's, it's all good. It's fun. But there, I think, and, and here's another analogy, because he says, he, he talks about Galileo in his book. You know, Galileo was right, you know, Copernicus was right and, and so on. And the Vatican astronomers refused to look through his telescope. Okay, that's true. Um, but he was wrong about Saturn. Why was he wrong about Saturn? Well, um, here, I'll show you the, the, the images here. I was pointing this out that, um, you know, Saturn is twice as far away as, um, as Jupiter. So it's really hard to make out what, what you're looking at. So here is his text from mm. his book. And, and he's talking about, I can't quite make it out. It's kind of blurry. It looks like it might be a planet with two huge moons, or maybe it's three planets. But, but then here, it's kind of more of like an oblong shape. What kind mm. of planet is that? His problem was um, twofold, degraded data. The data wasn't very good from his tiny little telescope. And two, there was no, um, no idea of planetary rings. No one knew planets could have rings. And, uh, and he saw it differently at different times of the year because as the earth goes around, Saturn's gonna look at different angles, different times of the year. So sometimes the rings are more edge on, so you can see more of them. And sometimes they're more, this is edge on or more oblique, you can see more of them. And so, you know, he was very baffled by this and it was almost 50 years before that anomaly got resolved uh, by Christian Huygens. And uh, in fact, I even have the catalog from his book showing, um, all the different theories that people had of what Saturn was, right? It's, you know, it's in the first one there, this one, that's what Galileo thought he saw. And other people said, I, I think it's this, I think it's that. No one could quite make it up. So this is the problem when you have, it's almost like a, a, an optical or auditory illusion where it's, where the image or the sound is degraded and you can't quite make out what you're looking at. And then the mind fills in with whatever concepts it has to perceive it. 
But if it doesn't have the right concept, you're going to get it wrong. Mm. And so this is what, and this would apply to any kind of anomaly. Like, you know, I, let's just, maybe we, there are known unknowns. We, we just know that there are things we don't know that are still out there because there's a lot we don't know. So before we say it's extraterrestrial, let's first make sure that it's not terrestrial. And we don't, uh, to me, we don't have enough evidence. We don't have enough of a database of everything that's out there to say for sure. It's none of those, therefore aliens. Mm. Yeah, and uh, just moving on to, for example, when I emailed you about doing the podcast, you sent me chapter 13 of your book and you talked about the case of classical liberalism. Now, from a British mm. position, position when we use the term liberal it means a very different thing to the Americans. Mm. <laughs> yeah. liberal here we have a party called the liberal democrats who are very much on the center left kind of spectrum of things and i'm i'm aware that dave rubin uses the phrase uh classical liberal lots of classical liberals in a british sense would be libertarians but how would you define your mm. classical liberalism yeah it's more like libertarian here i'd say or maybe for you guys, I don't know. It's hard to say. I wish we had more parties like you guys or Germany. My wife's from Germany. And, um, you know, we have a duopoly. And, you know, the way it's structured here um, in terms of the the, uh, the voting precincts and in, in, in the each state and county uh, and the way the money moves around, we're always going to have a duopoly. It just, it just, there's just no way around it. No one, no third party person ever gets a big enough of a toehold. But like in Germany, for example, Angela Merkel has always had to make these compromises with the other people because they got X percentage of votes. So they get X number of people uh, in the in the cabinet and in, in, in the parliament and so on. And here it's winner take all. So, yeah. you know, it's 51, 49. Well, I've got 51. So everybody here is agrees with me. No, they don't actually. 49% of them don't agree with you. But you know, that's the problem. So what you guys have, I think is better. Anything that divides up power and doesn't let anybody get too much is a, to me, is a good thing. That is a classical liberal attitude in the, you know, kind of Jeffersonian, mm. Hamiltonian sense of um, dividing up power. Um, yeah. So, uh, but I don't see that changing here because the, the, the two parties have, they want to keep all that power. They don't want to give it up. Yeah. So, I'm, you know, I'm just interested because like you mentioned how, you know, in, in America, that you know, there's also the claim, oh, well, you know, 50, 51% of people voted for me, therefore, you know, they all agree, everyone agrees with me. And we had a I have a mandate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have a mandate, the will of the people. Um, <laughs> in, uh, but when we had our Brexit referendum in 2016, a very yeah. similar situation happened where 52% of people voted for to leave the EU and 48% of people didn't vote to leave the EU. But even the people who supported Brexit were saying, well, you know, every, 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 you know, everybody wants Brexit now, you know, it's, it's, it's very, it's very popular. Even when the people who voted for Brexit, that 52%, I don't think they even agreed on what they thought was wrong with the EU because it, it was right. a coalition of lots of different views. I mean, do you think that's right. a problem that, that politicians often, when people vote for them, they claim, oh, well, this can be a mandate to do everything I said, whereas actually right. Right. people often vote for them out of very different uh, perspectives. Yeah, I think it's a problem, but it's it's inherent in the system because it, there's sort of a logic to it. You know, you get elected, you may not get reelected, so you better do everything you can. You know, in this two years or four years or whatever your time is, and uh, and just act as if you have a mandate. I mean, they all kind of have to do it. There's a certain logic to it. Mm -hmm. I wish it wasn't there, but it is. 
By the way, is it true there was a meme going around right after that that you know some percentage of of, of Brits had to look up on Google what is Brexit? Yes, that, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Well, <laughs> what did we just? By the way, what did I just vote for? I better look it up. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, this is part of the issue. I think is that the 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 referendum in and of itself um, created an issue of something which wasn't hadn't really apart from a clique of people who who cared about it it hadn't really been an issue in the, in the popular consciousness of the people they they were interested in, in much more important stuff and um, it only became yes. an issue because yes. they wanted the referendum yes yeah a lot of times i think we pull back and take a, a little bit bigger look at this picture of you know when people publicly state they believe something uh, do they really understand what it is they're they're saying? Probably not. I mean, uh, most most people don't understand climate science. It's a technical science. Mm. You know, at, at Skeptic Magazine, we get articles people doubting this or skeptical of that or whatever they send me. You know, I don't really understand them. I have to send them to climate science. It's not what I do. And uh, you know, but so when public somebody says oh, I doubt climate global warming is real or I accept the science behind global warming, what they're really saying is. I trust the authority of scientists or I'm a good Republican. So I doubt the authority of science on this issue because it's politicized. They're, they're, they're kind of making a public statement about uh, their allegiance to a, a, an ideology or a party, you know, like, like, uh, you know, Brexit is, was your example, but like the free trade agreement, the North American free trade agreement NAFTA, you know, if you ask people, what is it? You know, most people go, uh, I don't know, <laughs> but I'm against it. Cause why? Well, cause the, you know, the boss said he's against it, right? The, you know, the political party is against it or it's for it or whatever. And, and I think that's probably true for most complex issues like that. Most people haven't really given it that much thought. You know, mm, and, if you ask, and, well, there's been, there's been studies on, you know, why Christians, for example, not just uh, creationists, I mean, you know, what, why, why did they doubt evolution? Explain what you think evolution is. Most people have no idea what it is. You yeah. know, they have kind of a Lamarckian view of evolution. They, and they don't really understand the population uh, model of na how natural selection works with, you know, gene shifts, gene shifting in populations and all that. Most people don't have no idea what they're talking about. Mm. But, but, you know, they, they grew up in some household that said, well, evolution can't be true, you know, because it challenges our beliefs. And so again, if you give somebody a choice between Darwin and Jesus and that, you know, they're Christians, they're not picking Darwin. You know, that's <laughs> the wrong choice, right? You got to say, look, maybe evolution was God's way of creating the diversity of life. And, and Darwin actually made this argument in the second edition of the origin of species, because he responded to some of his crit critics by saying, well, you know, when Newton came out with his theory in the Principia, um, you know, some, some um, theists were worried that this might remove God, but in fact, it all kind of worked out where, you know, the deity set up the universe to run by gravity, and this is how it works. And so you can still be a, uh, a believer and accept the science behind Newtonian mechanics. And so Darwin was saying, you see, you know, evolution, it's okay to accept this theory. It doesn't take anything away from religion. And what he's doing there is he's kind of side you know, doing an end run around this issue of, you know, people don't really even know what it is, but they feel like it's going to, it's going to uh, uh, remove my core belief, right? So, you know, when a, when a conservative here in America hears global warming, you know, their brain auto corrects to, 
liberalism, Al Gore, uh, anti-capitalism, anti-free markets, you know, control of the economy, big government, socialism, you know, that, that's what they hear. They don't hear, you know, parts per million of CO2 gases and glaciers or anything like that. I mean, just moving over to the scientific humanism bit, I, I read your The Moral Arc and I read Sam Harris's The Moral Landscape. And before I'd read those two books, I'd come from a, a Christian tradition, a reformed tradition that would, many reformed apologists would say, well, there's, there's objective morality, which is my position, that morality is certain, and then everyone else is subjective. But you and Sam Harris, for example, and I think Richard Dawkins would possibly in this pit talk about what's called moral realism. I was wondering if you yeah. could just like expand that a bit, what you mean by that and how that's yeah. maybe. Yeah, to yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting area. There's not many of us in the sciences, although in philosophy, you know, moral realism is a, is a legitimate position. Lots of philosophers accept that. You can look at that survey I referenced earlier about free will determinism. And they, they asked these professional philosophers about, you know, 20 different debates in philosophy. That's one of them, you know, is, is moral realism a legitimate position? Are there really moral values out there to be discovered? Okay, so from my scientific perspective, and here Sam and, and Steve Pinker probably, and maybe Dawkins as well, and a few others argue that um, in a way, the understanding of human nature and what we want to survive and flourish uh, very much depends on the way things actually are. Right. So would you rather be free or enslaved? Would you rather be starving or satisfied, you know, have enough food? Would you rather uh, be able to vote or not? You know, and, and you, you, know, you just kind of go down the line. Would, would you rather be healthy or diseased? I think that's Sam's example of, you know, the worst possible case where you're, you know, you, you're, you're diseased and have cancer and miserable and pain and so on. Anything above that is, is really better, measurably better, so, something like that. I think those are, uh, these are all good arguments. Uh, you know, it's, I, I, I like to quote Abraham Lincoln, you know, if slavery is not wrong, then nothing's wrong. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, in a way he's saying that's moral realism. Now, again, maybe we can't resolve what's the proper, correct, true tax rate of the upper income bracket, whatever. But, but you know, is slavery wrong? Yeah, it's really wrong. Yeah, it really is. And how do you know? Because if you ask people, do you want to be a slave? You know, they'll tell you, no, I don't. <laughs> And, you know, how do we know that the people in the past didn't want to be slaves? Because they tried to escape. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, one of, the, one of the funnier, crazier moments in the history of psychiatry was this disease called drapetomania, which was the tendency of Blacks to try to escape to freedom. They consider that a disease. Like, yeah, why don't they love being where we know they should be? Because they don't want to be there. That's why you have to use whips and chains and lock them up because they don't want that, right? So, you know, I think in the long moral arc of progress that you know, we've been talking about, you know, we, we've had this dry move toward more democracy, less autocracy. You know, there's a few dictatorships left, you know, North Korea and, and China, I guess, probably Russia and now and Iran, there's a few. But, but you know, a century ago, there, there weren't very many democracies, you know, even a century and a year ago, uh, even America wasn't a liberal democracy because women couldn't vote. Half the adult population couldn't vote, right? So, but now women can vote in every country. You know, the, why, why, why is that pro progress? That's, that, that's a real 
measurable value you can detect by asking women, do you want the right to vote? Yes, I do. Okay, end of story. You know, that in a way, it's a, it's a kind of a discovery of something that's really out there. You know, not in the cosmos, but in human nature. We're looking in human nature. What is it people want? And uh, so to me that, you know, we are deriving an is, uh, an ought from an is in a way, which you're not supposed to do. And although I'm building into my, my is is a certain kind of ought, like I'm saying that the, the, the way human nature is, is it has built in oughts, like, you know, moral values are in there. We want, we want to have a right and wrong. And, 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 and there's a reason we have the feelings of guilt and shame when we do wrong. Uh, and harm other people and so on. Those are part of our nature. So I, I think that's, it's reasonable to make that argument. And, and I, I have, and I'm, I'm, I'm writing even more about that, trying to, you know, look at moral, you know, moral truths as is different still yet than, than religious, different than religious or political truths, but closer to empirical truths, at least some moral values are. There's a, there's a statement in the book where you say that changing your mind when the evidence changes is is a virtue in science and i really like that statement so so with that in mind obviously one of the biggest changes you made was you went to uni as i think it was college or uni as a body and christian and became an atheist apart from that change what what's what what are some of the other biggest change of mind that you've you've experienced over the last mm. 25 30 years yeah, gun control would be one. I, I was pretty much just like, let people do whatever they want with their guns and keep the government out of it. And uh, But I've changed my mind about that. I think we do need gun control legislation because there's enough bad actors out there with guns. Again, they, they may not be evil, but but you know violence escalates. And if you have to ha happen to have a gun on the on your car seat next to you, when you get flipped off by the guy in the other car, you know bad things can happen. So it's good to have that kind of thing. Uh, the abortion issue, I'm, I'm more friendly toward the pro-life position, although I'm still pro-choice for other reasons. You know, here I think we, we have the concept of conflicting rights. Uh, in this case, the, the, the rights of the mother conflicting with the rights of the fetus to live. And, um, you know, at some point we have to draw the line somewhere, you know, legally uh, for a law, even though science will tell us, well, there is no good place, perfect place to draw the line. Mm -hmm. So you just make it at 20 weeks or 22 weeks or, you know, different countries have different places where they draw the line. Uh, you know, but there, and I, I, I'm more friendly to the, the idea that, you know, when pro-lifers say, well, it is a life, you know, and, 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 and maybe pro-choicers go, no, it's just tissue. It's like, no, it's not just tissue. You know, it's 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 a it's a it's a human life, and it's a potential person. It's not a person yet legally, but it is human life. So let's you know that should be done seriously, and all the more reason to promote birth control, and uh, you know family planning and things like that. Education, you know, and and that uh, when women are educated and have economic power and access to birth control, uh, abortion rates go down. You know, so here I try to find common ground with uh, pro-lifers that. You know, we're both after the same thing. We, you say you want fewer abortions, but it's not abortions is not the problem. It's unwanted pregnancies. Mm. Why are there unwanted pregnancies? Because people are having sex unprotected. That's why. Well, why are they having unprotected sex? Well, they, you know, they weren't educated properly, or they didn't have access to birth control, you know, and so on. Or they were told they were supposed to take a chastity pledge. Yeah, well, that works great until it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> then you're un, then you're unprepared, right? 
Uh, let's see. Uh, other things um, I changed my mind on. Uh, let's see. Well, I haven't really made up my mind on immigration. I go back and forth on that. Uh, I would, I, you know, in the long run, I'd like to see the nation state dissolve and just go back to city states. I don't think that's going to happen anytime in the <laughs> century or two, but, but, you know, but it's not a permanent situation. I mean, there's cities that have been around for thousands of years, but states are just a few centuries old, you know, so it's not like we have to live with it. So I'm open to that possibility. Um, yeah, I think, you know, that's probably the highlights. Mm. I'm just wondering for those people who haven't read the book, because uh, I'm I'm a big fan of a of a French politician. I don't know if you know him. His name's Jean-Luc Mélenchon, and he's like he's hard left, you know, French politician. And uh, he did a really <laughs> at the last presidential election, he did a really interesting speech on the frontiers of humanity. And one of them he mentioned was um, the privatization of space, or you know the you know, the role of the private sector in space exploration. And I'm just wondering if you could sort of flesh out for the people who are listening, your argument you make about Mars and people like Elon Musk. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> I can't believe it. This could happen in my lifetime. Thanks to Elon, yes. I mean, I love big thinkers like that. Yes, well, there are space treaties about uh, not owning land on Mars or the moon, I think those would have to be, there'd have to be some workaround for those because the incentive for a private company to go would have to be, well, we gotta get our money out eventually. Mm. How are we gonna do that? Uh, so there has to be maybe some leasing of land or something like that. These things are usually worked out, you know, like um, when corporations want to, uh, to uh, sort of, what's the easements, you know, just sort of moving into a space that's public or you know, build a highway or, or a shopping mall or, or something like that, and you got to lease the land. You know, there, there's ways to get around the treaties. I think it's you know we here. I think space exploration is going to require a combination of government and private industry. Clearly, government by itself uh, was needed at the beginning to you know the Apollo program and so on. No private company could have ever done that in the '60s. They could do it now, but I think you still need some government regulation and also probably some government money. I mean, a lot of uh, SpaceX's money comes from a Department of Defense uh, spending for launching satellites, defense satellites. We don't know much about them because they're, they're secret. But, uh, <laughs> but I, know, I know Elon gets a lot of his money from the government. As, as he does with his Tesla, I have a Tesla, you know, and I got uh, $7,500 off my taxes for buying it and for the feds. And I got $2,500 uh, from the state of California for buying it. Now that's, that's going, that's gone away in California now because there's so many electric cars here, but, and it's going away in the federal government. But the point is that, you know, Elon gets a free 10,000 uh, bucks indirectly through me by my getting it from the government. Well, that's, that's not pure capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so that there, there, I think for big projects like that, like space exploration, like starting, starting a new car company, that's really difficult to do. You know, most that have tried have failed. I think Elon himself made the point that I think only Ford is the only company that's never car company that's never declared bankruptcy. And Tesla is the second one. I mean, it's really expensive. It's very, very risky. And, you know, this isn't, it's not like a, a small startup in a garage, like mm. Steve Jobs and his buddy uh, Wozniak in their parents' garage. It, it, it doesn't work like that for big industries like that. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those exciting things. I mean, when you, I, I love watching Elon Musk Twitter because he's like, 
He's got that famous meme of him now on the Lion King. And I do think the the colonization of space is something interesting. But just just bringing this to a to an end, we like to ask one final question of all our guests. And so I'm going to extend it a bit to not just be politicians. But if you could pick three people who've influenced your thinking, who would they be and why? Right. Okay, three people. Well, I'd say Carl Sagan and Stephen Jay Gould. Uh, as not my contemporaries because they were older than me and that were kind of kind of mentored me um, in, in two ways. Uh, one is you know the kind of uh, the way they approach being a public intellectual, which I admired and, and kind of modeled myself after. But very ecumenical, very not too confrontational. Although Gould could be with creationists, but for the most part, he you know he he tried to uh, thread the fine fine line there of of being open to talking to people. Good educator, good good writers. I like that. Dawkins probably I'd throw in there because he's a little older than me. Mm-hmm. If, I, if you're looking for that, Steve Pinker is my contemporary. So he's certainly influential in his thinking. Uh, but those three, I'd say, yeah, Dawkins, Gould, and Sagan. Uh, and before then, maybe um, Jacob Bernowski with his Ascent of Man, you know, that was pretty influential on me as well. You know, and then of course I had personal um, mentors, just prof- college professors I had that became friends that influenced me. No one would ever have heard of them, but um, you know that 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 you know everybody has that. I think uh, mm. you know when you know Obama made that famous statement. Uh, you know, you didn't build that. You know, conservatives' heads exploded. Well, you know, he was making the point that all of us, you know, how lives turn out. All of us have you know a certain amount of luck and good fortune and good people that guide us, mentors that help us um along the way and you know this idea the conservative idea the sort of just world theory you know that you know the the rich are deserve it because they made it on their own without anybody helping them and the poor are poor because they're lazy and uncreative and you know this is just not true you know (laughs) almost all successful people have lots and lots of help along the way and uh and that's certainly the case for me as well i mean i still got to get out of bed in the morning go to work but you know there's still a certain amount of that of course but you know i I have the good fortune to have had a lot of good role models and you know i would say those three uh, on on many levels well yeah if people want to uh find out more about yourself and follow you and stuff where can they go to find out more information yeah, skeptic.com is the webpage for the magazine and society. And then michaelshermer.com is my personal webpage, although there's a lot of overlap there. Tons of free content there. Uh, and as well as you can order signed copies of my books there and, and order back issues of Skeptic Magazine all the way back to the beginning. Yeah, so that that's and then my podcast is called uh, creatively enough the michael Shermer show <laughs> and, uh, so we we drop those every week uh and i talk to mostly talk to people with um new books out like t- my guest today is ian hersey alley her new book is called pray uh immigration islam and the erosion of women's rights and uh you know it's it, it was quite the conversation i mean she's uh, you know really Nailing the she even has a trigger warning. I've never seen a book with a trigger warning. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it says, This is a trigger warning for the entire book. Reading it, you should be triggered. <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> I do like that. Uh, anyway, so yep. Thank you, gentlemen. Good to talk. Excellent. Good to talk yeah. to you. Thanks for watching and listening. If you like the podcast, or your politics junkie, or you just like my face, please go and hit the subscribe button to keep up to date with new episodes. 
This is another in a series of podcasts by The Conversation 11 called Can I Make a Point? We'll be releasing new episodes every Sunday morning at 10. If there's things you want us to cover or things you want us to try more of, let us know in the comments or get in touch via Twitter at TC underscore Lemon. That's all for now, but you can head over to conversation11.com for more content or you can subscribe to our Patreon to access exclusive episodes extra clips. But for now, it's goodbye from Danny and goodbye from me. Bye.